If you have your Bibles, let's go to Revelation chapter 3. And tonight, Lord willing, we're going to cover the last two churches uh, in these letters written to the seven churches in Revelation. Tonight, we're going to be looking at uh, Philadelphia, the obedient church. And then we will also, Lord willing, be looking at Laodicea, the lukewarm church. It's kind of interesting to put those two together as I've studied it again, looked over it again. It's interesting to be able to, to put those two congregations together and to study those two congregations uh, as a group. Uh, the church that was the obedient church and the church that was the lukewarm church. So Philadelphia is the one we want to start with. Revelation chapter 3 beginning uh, in verse 7. Philadelphia is the serving church. They are the obedient church. They are the, you might call them the church of the open door. Uh, Let me say this about this church before we start reading the text. If you had been alive in the days that Jesus was speaking about, this is the church you would want to have attended. This is the church that you would want to be a part of. Uh, This is the church, the kind of church you'd want to be a member of. If you found the previous three or four churches that we've studied, if you found them to be somewhat depressing, uh, uh, the church at Philadelphia is going to be refreshing to study. Like Smyrna, the Lord had no word of condemnation for this church. Uh, Jesus basically brags on this church. And uh, so let's pick up the, the story in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I want you to pray with me before we start tonight. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be before these people, your people, to be in your church. I thank you, God, that... that Uh, you've given us your word that we can open it, we can read it, we can understand it by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that the Spirit of God would be our teacher tonight. I thank you for encouraging me as I have studied, as as I have looked at this material. Thank you for what you've shown me and how you've encouraged me. And God, would you do it again tonight uh, as you speak to your people through my voice. So we ask for that. We pray for that. May the, the word bring forth fruit. And may it be fruit that will last. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. As we've told you before, in each of these letters, the person that is speaking is emphasized. And is emphasized in a different way. uh, And it helps you to appreciate the message that is given to that particular congregation. And it's basically, we're talking about this. You need to know who is speaking so that you can understand and appreciate what he says. So notice how Jesus is introduced, uh, or how the angel of the church is introduced in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. Three important aspects of Christ's character are revealed to this church in Philadelphia in verse 7. They give us a wonderful picture of who Jesus is. What's the first descriptive word used to describe Jesus in verse 7? He is what? He's holy. Now that underscores his character. Uh, The writer here is is underscoring the character of Jesus. He is 
Before I tell you what I think holy means, you tell me what it means. What does that word holy imply to you? Set apart. That's a good definition. Somebody else. Right with God. Without sin. Those are very good descriptions. These are the words of him who is separate from sin. These are the words of him who is pure. These are the words of him who is set apart. These are the words of him who is completely free from any taint of moral corruption. He's holy. Secondly, he is true. This underscores his integrity. He's the the true one in contrast to to false and deceit. The words that we're about to read are from the true one. He is genuine. While other gods, little g gods, and religious leaders are counterfeit, Jesus is genuine. He's true. And then there's something interesting. It says that he holds something. What does he hold? The key of David. Now that's a very interesting description. We can understand that Jesus is holy, right? We understand that he's true, that he's, he's, uh, he has, he's a person of integrity. He's not false. But this phrase, he holds the key of David, speaks of his authority. In fact, if you read it again, look for a phrase. Let me show you. Uh, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. And here's his authority. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Now, you probably have heard that phrase before. Perhaps you may or may not have realized that it really has its that it came out of Scripture. But it not only comes from the New Testament, it also is rooted in the Old Testament. You might want to write a a reference down there in your notes or in your Bible. Uh, The reference is Isaiah chapter 22, verse 20 through 22. Isaiah 22, verse 20 through 22. Go back to, to that Old Testament book of Isaiah. Chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 20. In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand, notice this, and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of David. And I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David, and and listen to see if this does not sound familiar. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Eliakim was a priest who held the the office of key holder in King David's palace. Uh, King David uh, trusted Eliakim, and, and he had the key basically to the palace. His And his office, and it says in that text, I will give him this authority. His office uh, that he had was was given to him. He had full authority to act on behalf of the king. And it is believed that that he probably literally unlocked the doors of the palace. He was the one that had the key to the palace. He was the only one that could, he had that place of authority. That he could unlock the doors of the palace and what he unlocked, it remained unlocked because he was the only one who had that, that authority. And when he locked it, it remained locked because he was the only one who had that authority. He was the key holder 
for the palace of David. He was the one commissioned to open the door and to close the door. Now in Revelation chapter 3, it shows us that this is not just a passage about Eliakim, but really what you read in Isaiah 22 is a messianic promise of what Christ would one day be. And we see this fulfilled in Revelation chapter 3, this messianic promise that Jesus is the ultimate key holder. That as the Messiah, as God's anointed one, He has ultimate authority. And what He opens, no one can shut. And what He shuts, no one can open. But He wasn't opening the door to the palace. Somebody get ready to say, man, He's opening the door to, the, to heaven. He's not just opening the door to the palace of the king. He is the king who opens up the doors of heaven. And when he died on the cross, when he gave his life as a sacrifice, he died on the cross, he opened the door so that anyone could come in to God's kingdom. But there will come a day when he will close the door at the day of judgment and no one will go in. No one will be allowed in. The doors of opportunity for preaching and sharing the gospel are controlled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll see in a moment why that truth is so important. So back to Revelation chapter 3. We read verse 7. There is in verse 8 a commendation. Look what he says in verse 8. I know, that you're, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you the one who's in charge, the one who has the keys. He says, watch this. This is so good. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you a what, church? An open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The church at Philadelphia was a wonderful church, and it had three things going for it. First of all, it had an incredible God-given opportunity. He says, I place before you an open door. This is a God-given opportunity. I have placed this before you. This is not chance that this has come about. Jesus said to the, to the church at Philadelphia, I have placed before you, I have unlocked for you, I have opened for you. This opportunity is an opportunity, an open door for them to, we believe, most scholars believe what he's talking about there is an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. I have, proclaimed, I have opened for you an open door so that you can proclaim the gospel. Uh, let me show you why I believe that's what he's talking about. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8 and 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8 and 9. Very similar language you'll see in the writings of Paul, 1 Corinthians 16. Verse 8 and 9. Paul says, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because, look at this, because a great door for effective work has been opened to me. And there are many who oppose me. A great door of effective work has been opened to me. Who do you suppose opened the door? Talk to me. Who do you suppose opened this door for Paul? That's right. The Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul says here, he says, listen, I plan to stay on at Ephesus because it appears right now from what I'm looking at that the one who has the key, the only one who can open doors like this, has opened a door of opportunity for me. 
And so I'm going to stay here and proclaim the gospel because he has opened this door. Christ is the Lord of the harvest. Christ is the head of the church. And he sovereignly, listen to this, he sovereignly gives churches opportunities to share the gospel. He sovereignly opens doors for churches to share the gospel. He said in Revelation 3, I have placed before you an open door. This is not by chance. It's not by accident. I have placed before you an open door. Now, now let me talk to you for a moment as your pastor. Ladies and gentlemen, I really believe with all of my heart God's done this for Mount Airy. I really believe with all of my heart that God has opened up doors of opportunity for us that we could not open on our own. He has sovereignly given us opportunities to make a difference for the kingdom. God's done that for Mount Airy. And that's why we go to where we go. That's why we've gone to places like Costa Rica and Cleveland and other places. Uh, we've told you recently, Chris and I, uh, a month or so ago, went to Boston. We don't know all the details yet, but, but it appears that God's opening a door for us in Boston. There's a great church planning opportunity. The church, uh, uh, the gospel is so needed in the city of Boston. It was, it's amazing what... what uh, the need is in the city of Boston. And it appears, we, we've made some connections, and it appears that God's opening a door of opportunity. And here's what I'm asking you. Please don't take those kind of things for granted. Please don't assume that every church does this. Please don't assume that every church has the opportunities that we have. And I'm not saying we're the best. I'm not saying we're the greatest. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying thank God, He's opening doors for us. I have placed before you, He says, an open door. They, they had an incredible God-given opportunity. And then in verse 8, the second part of verse 8, they also had a great devotion to God. Here's the reason He opened these doors for them. He opened the doors, He says, I know, in the middle of verse 8, I know that you have little strength, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I know that you have little strength. That word little there does not mean uh, they, they were spiritually weak. The word little strength there probably refers to the fact that they were small in number. You have little strength. You're a small little congregation. You don't have a lot of people there. But you have a great opportunity. You've got a small group, but you've got a great opportunity. This, this probably was an indication that this was not... Uh, a big church. Church of Philadelphia was probably not a big church. It was not one of those, what we would call today, a mega church. It has all kinds of ministries and, and a great budget and, and all kinds of programs. But they did have one thing. It was a small group of people, but they did have one thing. What was that one thing that they had according to this verse, church? Yes, they were faithful to God. They had a great devotion to God. Now, now when I read that verse, I was reminded, I thought about a little... My little home church that I grew up in. I, I've told some of you this story before, but uh, let me tell you another story. Kind of put these two stories together. Many of you know that I grew up in a little bitty church. If we had 60 on a Sunday, it was a high attendance day. I mean, that, that's just the truth. It was a little bitty white church on a hill, Clifton View Baptist Church. We had 60 on a Sunday. It was a big, big day. I can still remember going to another church while I was in college. 
And they asked me to come talk to them about coming to be their pastor. Now, I was trying to remember today, Lisa, when that was. I was, I was dating Lisa before we were married. It was when I was in college. I don't remember exactly what age I was, but I was probably around, since if, if I was already dating her, I was probably around 20 years old. And to this day, I still don't know how they got my name. I just remember that, that they, somebody called me and they invited me to come to their church and talk to them about being their pastor. 20-year-old college. I was too young to be their pastor. But because they called and invited me, I, I had never been a pastor before. Of course, I was just 20 years old. And, but because they invited me, I went and talked to the committee. I was scared to death. I, I was a 20-year-old college kid. I, they were talking to, to me about being pastor. I was scared to death. First church I'd ever talked to. I remember saying to my mom and dad, this is gospel truth, after it was all over. I remember saying to my mom and dad, I, I don't think they'll be interested in me because that's a big church. But do you know why I said it was a big church? This is true. I thought the reason I said it was a big church was because they had a paved parking lot. <laughs> the church I grew up in had a gravel parking lot. And to me, if you had made it to the level of having a paved parking lot, you were a big church. <laughs> that little church, that little white church with a gravel parking lot on top of the hill in Johnson City, Tennessee, didn't have a whole lot. Didn't have a lot of numbers, didn't have a lot of programs, didn't have a lot of money. But they had a great devotion to God as I was growing up. I want you to know that uh, this description of G that Jesus said of this church in Philadelphia, he says, look at it again, he says, I know that you have little strength, you're small in numbers, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. That'd be a good description of little Clifton View Baptist Church. And, and I want you to know something about that little white church with a gravel parking lot on the hill. In my time there, which was about 18 years, I left when I was 18 years old. In my time there, during those 18 years, four preachers were called out of that little church. And those four pastors are still pastoring today in a church where if you had 60, you had a big crowd. You see, it's not what you can do for Christ that matters. It's what Christ can do through you that matters. Mount Airy Baptist Church, it's not about what we can do. It's about the opportunities He gives us for Him to work in and through us. There's a twofold promise that I want you to see. They had also a great promise beginning in verse 9 and 10. Twofold promise. He said, verse 9, I will make those who are now, now, this is starting to get a little bold. It's starting to get a little direct. He says in verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. And then he says in verse 10, Since you have kept my command and endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. Uh, that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. There's a twofold promise in these verses. Let me go through this pretty quickly. First of all, there is the promise of vindication. 
in verse 9. The Jews in the city were being used by Satan to oppose what God wanted to do in Philadelphia. Remember now, God had placed an open door before the church. An open door to share the gospel. God had opened this door. But Satan was trying as best he could to slam that door shut. Can I tell you that Satan always all, uh, works in that way? Would you go back again to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9? And would somebody read that verse again? We looked at it a moment ago. I need somebody to read 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. Read it out loud for us. Who will read it? Yeah, did you see that second half? A great door has opened to me. And what was the second half, Donna? And there are many who oppose me. A great door has been opened, but there are many who oppose me. That was true to the church at Philadelphia as well. There was this promise of vindication where where Jesus said, I'm going to take care of your enemies. Warren Wiersbe said, if we take care of God's work, He will take care of our battles. That's a good word. Listen, you focus on God's work, let God focus on the battles. There's the promise of vindication in verse 9. Then there is the promise of deliverance. This is an incredible promise in verse 3. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I also will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Scholars debate what what Jesus meant by this hour of trial. Uh, My belief is he's talking probably about the great tribulation that that will come. The great tribulation that we'll be looking at in later chapters. If you want a, a description of the great tribulation, all you have to do is read Matthew 24, verse 21. Go to that quickly. Matthew 24, verse 21. You'll understand why it's called the great tribulation if you read Matthew 24, verse 21. Here's what he says. For then there will be a great distress, not a small distress, not just distress, but a great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. This great distress, this what we call the great tribulation, is unequaled. It's, it's, he says when it comes, it will be unequaled. Nothing has ever occurred like it. Nothing has ever been this bad. This hour of trial, as it's referred to in, in Revelation 3, is probably this great tribulation that's going to come. And notice, what does he say he's going to do for these people in verse 10? Revelation 3.10. What does he say he will do for this church? Say it louder. Keep them from it. I'm going to keep you from this time. Now, probably what that is referring to, or at least possibly what that is referring to, seems to indicate perhaps the rapture. That Jesus will catch away God's people from the world. Those who believe that would say this, this probably supports a pre-tribulation theory about the church being removed before the Great Tribulation. I'm not going to get into all that right now because let me, let me tell you what we're going to do. Uh, next Sunday night, I believe it's next Sunday night, we get to chapter 4 and we're going to be talking about the rapture. So that's the time everybody, that's what everybody wants to talk about when we talk about Revelation, right? Uh, so that's next Sunday night, so I'm not going to get into that too much. But, but the main thing I want you to see now 
is when, when Jesus says to this church, I'm going to take care of your enemies, and I'm going to take care of you. I'll remove you from, the, from all of this. I'll take care of you. Then there's the counsel in verse 11. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Or, and that word crown means your reward. That, that's what he's talking about. Throughout the New Testament, there are many references to the imminent return of Jesus Christ. He says in this text, I am coming what? Soon. Now, there's all kinds of references like this in the New Testament. We're going to do a kind of a Bible drill. I've got four sections of people here, so I'm going to depend on you to help me here. In this first section over here to my left, I need these people over here to my far left to look up Romans chapter 13, verse 12. Romans 13, verse 12. In this section right here, I need you to look up Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. This section to my right, right here, I need you to look up James 5, 9. James 5, verse 9. And on the far right, I need you folks to look up 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. That's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Give you a moment to find that, and then I'm just going to ask you to read that as we move from verse to verse. Okay, Romans 13, verse 12. Somebody over here, who's going to read Romans 13, 12? And the rest of us, would you listen very carefully to what's read? See, see if you see a common theme in these verses. Romans 13, 12. The night's nearly over. The day is almost here. All right, in this section right here, uh, what was the reference? It is Hebrews 10.25. All right. There is a day approaching. All right. In this section right here, James 5.9. All right. Not only is there a day approaching, there's a judge coming. And this judge is standing at the door in the far right. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is what? What year is this? Yeah, two, I, I was waiting to see if somebody would say 2015. It's 2016. It's been a while, hasn't it? Since any of those verses were written. It's been a while. Though he said the end of all things is near. It's been a while since those verses have been written. So here's my question. Were they wrong? No. Why? Because God's word is true. Okay. All right. Because what? We're closer today than we were yesterday. Uh huh. All right. When you compare God's timing 
to eternity, then, then 2016, that's, that's, that's nothing. Listen, listen to Revelation, I'm sorry, to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Just, just listen, don't even try to find it. Just listen to this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, and many times, and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He has made the universe. The writer of Hebrews, whoever the, that author was, the writer of Hebrews refers to this time as the last days. Interesting phrase that he uses there. The reason that it's called the, called the last days is because the next great event on God's redemptive calendar is the second coming. There's nothing else that needs to be done before Jesus comes back. That's why we can say His coming is near. That's why we can say the judge is at the door. That's why we can say there's a day coming. The day is close at hand. That's why we can say His coming is going to be soon. We don't mean necessarily in terms of hours or minutes or months or years. We're talking chronologically. It's the next event. Chronologically, there's nothing left to be done. Chronologically, it's the, the next step before the end of time. The law has been given. The prophets have spoken. The Son was born. The Son was sacrificed. The Son was resurrected. The Son went back. Jesus went back to heaven. Evangelists and missionaries have gone out across the, the world. And the next great event is the return of the Lord Jesus. In fact, if you remember, if you remember when He left, the angel said, why are you looking up into heaven? This same Jesus will come back just as he went. Because that's the next great event. So, I don't want to get off on that too long because I, I'm wanting to, but I'm trying to pull back because I want to get on to the next church. But here's what I want you to see. The New Testament does not say when this event will take place, but hear me, church, the New Testament does say it will definitely take place. This is not theoretical. This is, this is not uh, uh, picturesque words that mean something else. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus Christ is coming the second time as surely as He came the first time. And then He ends in this discussion of the church at Philadelphia with a challenge, verses 12 through 13. Let me get back there, Revelation 3, verse 12 and 13. There's a series of great promises, and uh, we'll just hit this real quickly. Verse 12. He says, him who, over, him who overtakes or overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and never again will he leave it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit of the churches say. I don't really have the time to deal with all of that, except I'll summarize it this way to say, God was simply saying, when I will write on him a new name and the name of my eternal home and all those kind of things, God was simply saying, listen, I'm going to honor you because you've honored me. It is a principle in Scripture that when we honor God, He honors us. And if you had the time, you could dig into what each of these 
things mean when he says, I'll, I'll give you the name of my God, the name of your eternal home. But God is in essence saying, I'm going to honor you because you have honored me. That's the church of Philadelphia. And then we go to the church at Laodicea. Church of Philadelphia was the, the, the serving church. It was the missionary church. It was, it was the church that God, that Jesus bragged about. Church at Laodicea, the last church of the seven, is in some ways the worst of all of them. And the reason I say that is because it's the only church that Jesus said to those people, you make me sick. I would say it's a pretty bad church when the Lord Jesus says, you make me sick. Now, I remember very vividly being in Brazil on my first really foreign mission trip as a new pastor at, at uh, um, Crestview Baptist Church. First mission trip out of the country was to Brazil. It was hot down there. Uh, we'd, we'd done construction. I was tired. It was hot. I was looking forward to a nice cold Pepsi. And, and they have Pepsi in Brazil. Uh, I always check, does the country have Pepsi before we go anywhere? You know, I, just, I know if that's an open door or not, you know. I'm kidding. Uh, but they do have Pepsi there. And I ordered a Pepsi with great anticipation. Honestly, with great anticipation, they brought me a Pepsi. It had not been refrigerated. And I said, could I have some ice, please? They don't have ice. They don't serve it with ice. They have this crazy idea that if you drink a salt, if you, anything, water, soft drink, water, if you drink something with ice, it'll give you a sore throat. So you don't, drink, you don't drink a Pepsi over ice. No, 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 no. That'll give you a sore throat. So the whole concept, could I have ice, was, was, was foreign to them. So here's what I drank that day when I was hot and tired. I drank a lukewarm Pepsi. And it was awful. I mean, it was just awful. Some of you are, are coffee drinkers. You can relate to this. When you get up in the morning, does your wife say to you, Honey, would you like a nice lukewarm cup of coffee? It would be an awful way to start your day. You want the coffee hot when you drink it. I want the Pepsi cold when I drink it. I looked up the word lukewarm in the dictionary, and it means two things. It means barely warm or tepid, and it means lacking enthusiasm. Now, with that definition, let's begin reading in chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, the last church mentioned. Now, and remember now, this was a literal church, a literal place. He says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Exclamation mark. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Let's just stop there for a moment. Lukewarm, get this. Lukewarm implies that something once was hot, but now has cooled off. Don't forget that. Something once was hot and now has cooled off. That was the condition of the last church mentioned in the Bible. 
And many people think that's the kind of church that is in existence today and will be in existence when Christ returns. That there are many churches that once were hot for the things of God and have cooled off. Now, I want to give you something really important to help you understand this whole description of church at Laodicea. The city of Laodicea was known for three things. I want you to remember this. You might want to write it down. I don't think I put it in your notes. They were known for three things. Number one, they were known for the wealth. They were a banking center. They were known for wool. They had a huge textile industry. And they were known for eye salve. They, they had a little medical school there, and they actually made medicines there. I, I didn't put that in your notes, did I? That's not in your notes, is it? All right, so let's memorize this, because this is going to be good. They were known for three things. Number one, they were known for, what was the first one? They were known for wealth. It was a banking center. Number two, they were known for wool. They had a huge textile industry in that city. And number three, they were known for ISAB. Uh, they had a medical school there. They, they made medicines there. Now, remember those things as we get into this text. They will be important. Uh, let me tell you one other thing about Laodicea. Oh, man, I'm trying to decide. Tell you one other thing about Laodicea, about this lukewarm and cold and hot. Laodicea, the city, uh, was near the city of Hierapolis that had hot mineral spring water. And they actually had aqueducts built going from Hierapolis, and I may not be saying that correctly, to Laodicea, Laodicea to bring hot water to them. Depending on the time of the year, though, that hot water, by the time it got to Laodicea, would cool off. Laodicea also had cold water piped into it from Colossae. Again, depending on the time of year, this cold water, once it got to Laodicea, would warm up, become tepid, lukewarm. Jesus used those well-known facts about this city to say to the church at Ephesus or the church at Laodicea, that's who you are. That's what I see when I look at your church. Just like you go to the to the, the aqueducts to get hot water, and when you get it, it's no longer hot. Just like you go to the pipes to get the, the cold water from Colossae, and when you get it, it it's no longer cold. That's what you are, church. That's what I see in you. You're neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. And then he says, in fact, it is so disgusting what you are. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I'm from East Tennessee, folks. I don't know a whole lot, but I do know this. When you spit something out of your mouth, it means you got no use for it anymore. Right? When you spit something out of your mouth, it's not like, I'm going to come back and get that later. When you spit something out of your mouth, you've got no use for it. With that in mind, let's read the scripture real quickly. See what he says. These are the words of the amen. The amen. God's final word. The amen. The faithful and true witness. God's final word. The ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. That you are neither cold nor hot. I'm not judging you because you're cold. And I'm certainly not complimenting you because you're hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. 
the first thing that we notice about this church is that there is no commendation about this church like there have been other churches. He often began by saying something nice about a church before he corrected them. But the church at Laodicea, there was nothing nice that he said. Instead, he begins immediately with condemnation saying, you are sickening me. You are literally making me sick. You are repulsive to me. Now quickly, we've only got a few minutes. Quickly, tell me why you think lukewarm churches make Jesus so sick. Why is that? Sit louder. Going nowhere. Good. And don't glorify God. Good. All right, they backed away. Any others? These are good. They stand for nothing. He's describing a church more than likely that was indifferent, neutral, complacent, compromising, comfortable. A church that once was useful to him and now is not useful. A church that, that once used to be about the kingdom, and now they're about themselves. A church that once probably had an outward focus, and now has an inward focus. I want to tell you something. The Laodicean mindset is still with us today. The Laodicean mindset, some people have taken a bath in the lukewarm waters of religion. I got just enough of Jesus to make them feel good, but not enough of Jesus to do anything with Him. When you come to church, isn't it amazing? We can calm down, quiet down, sit down. But if we go to a ball game, God help us. Because we're going to be shouting and cheering and hoarse when we get here on Sunday. Why would God be so nauseated over lukewarmness? Because when we get into that condition, we are useless. And we don't even realize it. Yeah, you're blind to it. You don't even realize it. In fact, look at the text. Look at the text. <laughs> Verse 17. You say, now, now he said you're lukewarm. This is my... Jesus said, this is my estimation of who you are. And then he says in verse 17, you say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You think you're okay. But God says, what I see is far from okay. And then, let me close by looking. Showing you what he says in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Isn't it interesting? What was the city known for? Wealth, eye salve, and the wool, the clothing. He says, I counsel you not to go buy this stuff other places. He says, I counsel you to buy from me. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll only find in Jesus what we truly need.
trying to f decide where to go with this, how far to go. Um, uh, I got to cover verse 20. Be, please be patient. I got to get verse 20. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. He said, the reason I'm telling you this, it's not because I'm mad at you. The reason I'm telling you this is because I love you and I'm trying to discipline you. I'm trying to bring you back. All right? So be earnest and do what? Repent. Some things will never change until you repent. Repentance is not a bad word. Repentance is a biblical word. So, verse 20. Here I am. Exclamation mark. I stand at the door and We use this verse most of the time in evangelism. We say Jesus is on the outside of your heart's door and he's knocking and he's wanting you to invite him in. I've used it hundreds of times that way and we're not misusing it, but that's really not what the verse is talking about. The verse is talking about the Lord Jesus standing outside a lukewarm church trying to get back into it. He said, I'm at the door. And I'm trying to get back in the church. And I'm waiting for you to invite me back in. The word picture there is astounding to me. It's incredible to me. For, it's incredible for two reasons. First of all, it's incredible that Jesus would be kept outside the church. It's incredible also because he's patiently waiting to be invited back in. The graciousness of Jesus is amazing to me in that text. I'm standing at the door knocking, and I'd like to get back in. But if you don't invite me in, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth because I have no more use for you. The challenge that we all have is to hear what God is saying and to respond to it. So he closes with these words. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. i got to go back to verse 20 as I pray. Bow your heads. Bow your heads. Here's what the Lord said in verse 20. Just listen to this with your heads bowed. In verse 20 he says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus was saying, I still want to fellowship with you. I'm no longer experiencing intimate fellowship, but if you'll invite me back in, we can experience that fellowship again. This is a people who had turned away from Christ. They had been lured away by other things. And now he was standing at the door knocking. Saying, would you invite me back in so that we might fellowship once again? G. Campbell Morgan said this, The only cure for lukewarmness is the readmission of the excluded Christ.
The only cure for lukewarmness is the readmission of the excluded Christ. Father, in the name of Jesus, individually and as a church, may you deal with us and may we have ears to hear if we in our lukewarm state has pushed Jesus out the door. And may we invite him back in so that we might experience fellowship with you. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.